episode 127 of the pilot the pilot podcast takes off now Okay, my name is Major General Frank Muth. I'm a uh, Commanding General of the United States Army Recruiting Command. Uh, but I have, we're on here today to talk about aviation because I am my base skill set in the Army for the last 34 years has been flying helicopters. And I'm really looking forward to talking about that. I've been out of flying helicopters for a while, since about 2014 is the last time I flew. Uh, but I still have the passion that drove me to it in the beginning, and I still have it 34 years later. So. AV Nation, what is going on? And welcome back to the Pilot the Pilot Podcast. Today is a special episode. It is episode 127, one day after I just released episode 126. Today, I am talking with, as you've heard, Major General Muth. Major General Muth is uh, incredible, as you'll get out of this podcast. He is someone that inspires, someone that leads, someone that does not shy away from combat or answering the call. And it is just a great conversation just to, to hear his story. It's not necessarily a, a promo for the Army. It is just a hear his story and why he chose the army, why he chose flying, how he got into flying, which is a really funny story in its own and how he just kind of fell into it. But it's an amazing story. I was so honored and so thankful to be able to share his story as he is retiring. I believe it's today or tomorrow will be his last day and uh, just trying to get this out for that retirement. So uh, I hope you all enjoy this episode. If you do, please leave us a review on iTunes. You can follow us on Instagram at Pilot the Pilot and all social media at Pilot the Pilot as well. But Aviation, I want to take up any more of your time. This is a very special episode, and I'm very excited for this to come out. So without any further ado, here's Major General Muth. Major General Muth, what is going on? And welcome to the Pilot the Pilot podcast. What is going on, Justin? Man, I'm looking forward to this. A friend of mine did this with you a couple of weeks ago, uh, Troy DeGoyer, yeah. and uh, he raved about it. So I'm, I'm here to do it also. <laughs> I love it. I had a lot of fun talking with Troy. Uh, his story was yeah. really great, and I was excited to be a part of the Army National Hiring Days and uh, and help out in any way I can. So I'm excited to have you on and, and talk just just aviation, you know, just have some fun and uh, and talk about you and your story. Excellent. I'm looking forward to it. Perfect. Well, the first thing I always do is I want to kind of go way, way back. So, I mean, even before the army, like what was your initial draw to aviation? Was it joining the army and uh, going into helicopters? Or did you kind of, when you're a kid, did you always have a fascination <laughs> with, uh, with flying uh, planes, helicopters, whatever it may be? All right. Well, yeah, let's go way back. And, and I will say that I had a fascination with the military. Uh, with history and with, and more specifically with the army. Uh, and since I was little and I always kind of knew where my direction was and I was very lucky, but when it comes to aviation, I fell into it. it was, it's a complete, it was, so I wanted to go, my brother is a special forces medic and I wanted to go to the Rangers or special forces. And I was going to, I was on the path to go to Ranger school. I was going to try to, uh, between my junior and senior year at school. And I had an accident and, and hurt, injured my back pretty bad. So I couldn't go to Ranger school. Um, but I still was going to put in for infantry, uh, because that's kind of where I was thinking of really wanting to be in my place because to go to be in the Rangers or to be special forces, you had to, you have to be pretty much infantry. So anyway, um, but I didn't get to go to Ranger school that summer, but like in the spring, uh, a buddy of mine, uh, a guy named Tim Luby, who ended up getting aviation too. He says, Hey, what are you doing this afternoon? I said, nothing. 
I'm up at Norwich University. This is, this is uh, spring of 1985. And I said, nothing. He goes, well, let's go. There's this fast test and they're going to give it to me in the ROTC department. I said, what's that for? And I forgot what it stands for, you know, <laughs> but it's your, after, your, your aviation aptitude test. And I'm like, yeah, I got nothing else going on. So I didn't study. They give you a booklet. I didn't study at all. <laughs> I just went down there and I took the test. I passed by one point. No way. So, so no, I mean, passed. <laughs> Meaning, <laughs> usually you've got to score on the higher end to even be considered. And I think passing was 70 and I got a 71. So anyway, um, so I, the guy, he does it, he, you know, the, the instructor, he grades it right there and he goes, yeah, you, you passed 71. I said, okay. Uh, and I'm like, Tim, what do we do next? He goes, well, we go to the captain's or to the advanced camp this summer at Bragg. Instead of getting in the regular physical line, you have to get in the aviation physical line. I said, okay. So I went down and I passed my flight physical. And I did very average at at at, uh, at uh, aviation or the uh, advanced camp because they give you scores there. And I, my grades were okay. I, I was doing much better. My it was my freshman year that I jacked up, so I was still trying to make up for that. But I was doing a lot of stuff around the school. I was vice president of my class. I was captain of lacrosse team. I was held rank both in the ROTC department and because uh, Norwich is a military college uh, uh, up on the hill in the regiment. Um, so I had a lot of other stuff going on. But anyway, uh, I didn't think I'd get it. I really didn't. Um, there were like 15 guys in my class putting in for it and, uh, they all had better GPAs. They all did better at camp. I, I said, you know, and the guy said, Hey, look, I don't have a shot. You got to put it down as number one, at least. So I put it number one and put infantry number two. <laughs> they said the list was up. I ran down to the department and I went, Oh my gosh, I made it. Now I got to pass flight school. What am I going to do? Because, you know, cause I'd heard how hard it was and I fell into it. But I, what I realized is when I got down there and I started flying, um, how much passion I had for the flight, but more so for the mission. And that's what kind of really, because I ended up going back then, you either went lift uh, utility track or scout track. And, I, and you had to do pretty well in flight school to get the scout track. And I was lucky enough to get that. And, um, and then if you, once you pass scout track, you either went guns or you stayed scout. Uh, and I stayed scout and, uh, my first tour was Korea and it really, the flying was fun. But when I started to learn about how the mission is and more specifically the cavalry organizations, air cav, I was hooked. I yeah. really love that. That's awesome. That is a crazy yeah. story and not something <laughs> I, I was expecting to hear at all. Like, well, no, everybody like, you know, they, they, they talk about, oh, since I was a kid and I first saw a helicopter, a plane, that's always been my passion. I was like, yeah, I kind of fell into it. That's so funny. So, Your buddy's just like, Hey, yeah, come on. Hey, let's just go take the test. See what happens. Yeah. <laughs> Not studying know, at all. I, I passed by one point. <laughs> I've had friends who have studied for that test and they, they like pour their soul into that test. Like that's a big I deal. Know. It is. Yeah. So that's, like a, I mean, they'll probably be mad hearing that story. But like he's just gifted and got it. But that is so cool. I mean, yeah. it's, it's really funny with aviation because it's, it's one or two things, you know, you either come through a family of aviation or you're the first generation. And then a lot of times people that are the first generation, they don't know how easy it is to get involved with aviation. And it, it's as easy as just following your buddy to go take a test. And all of a sudden now you're in line to be a, an army helicopter pilot, you know? Exactly. That's it's crazy. Yeah. And, it's almost, and I'll tell uh, you, that, that's, that, that flight school was no joke. Yeah. I mean, you were, you were in the books and you were on the flight line every day and you're getting a check ride basically every day and a grade slip and you had to perform the maneuvers you had to answer the oral questions and then you had uh you were either on the flight line in the morning or the afternoon and then when you weren't on the flight line you were in academics and um i'll tell you what uh you know i i, I what i did not want to do is not pass 
And I would never was great academically. I mean, I, I was smart, but I just never applied myself. I was just into uh, the other stuff, you know? Right. And, uh, but I knew I, I was like, I can't get recycled or, you know, booted. And, uh, so I just studied and studied and studied. So anyway, but, uh, it, yeah, it, it was a, it was a really challenging year, but very rewarding. And then after that, I was lucky to get multiple back-to-back -back, uh, flying assignments that really, um, you know, broadened my skill set, and I really enjoyed it. You know, what was your family? What was their reaction when you're like, "Hey, uh, I'm going to be a, a helicopter pilot now"? <laughs> Surprise! Yeah, um, I, they were very. They, you know, I, I had never even remotely talked about it. Um, they were kind of surprised, and my brother looked at me. He's like, mm, "I heard that thing's really hard." <laughs> you the, the flight school, and yeah. it was. He's but, like, "You uh, want to do that? Are you sure?" <laughs> yeah, yeah, wow. But my parents came down to my graduation. And my sister did, and yeah, that was really nice. Yeah, awesome. and I, you know, I still am friends with. Um, the, uh, the guys I went to flight school with. I mean, one of my oldest and best friends in the army, he and I carpooled together in, he's out now, he works for Bell, but um, he, you know, we were inseparable that whole year, you know? It's so. funny when you go through something like that, like that's a very hard year. You guys were probably running around like chickens with your head cut off, just trying to stay alive. And, and you have this, you form such a bond with the people that you're surrounded with. And I'm guessing that's the whole army in general is when you go out yeah. to war, you, you kind of just have this whole, uh, this whole bond. So you're always going to be friends. You're always going to have that in common. And 20 years down the line, 30, 40 years down the line, you'll always be like, Hey, you'll have some stories in common and drink some beers and, and talk about that. So funny story. This guy, his name's Steve Mathias. I'm sure he wouldn't mind me. Um, saying his name, but he was one of the first few that out of flight school went straight Apaches. Um, and he went to desert storm with general Cody as one of his platoon leaders, uh, out of the first of the 101st, no mercy. And what's really funny is, uh, we both got, I think, promoted to captain the same day, which was about seven days before the war kicked off. So January of 91. And, um, I had the opportunity that they, they fired the uh, troop commander. I was in four squadron, third armored cavalry regiment, and I was the support platoon leader. So the support platoon leader gets the gas and the beans and the bullets and all that stuff. And they, I had been a captain for seven days and they fired this guy. And uh, the squadron commander called me into his tent the night before and said, what are you doing tomorrow? I said, well, I'm going to, you know, I'm setting up a far pier, a refuel point here. I'm picking up some more water for the uh, squadron to send you about. And he goes, no, you're taking commander renegade troop tomorrow at nine o'clock. And I'm like, what? <laughs> you he goes, yeah. So yeah. Renegade troop. Uh, it was one of the attack troops. So it had, I had seven Cobras and four, uh, scouts. Oh, wow. So I'm like, Oh my gosh. And the war start started in, was going to start in three days and we were displacing. And he goes, well, what do you need to do to, I said to, to, find out if this troop's ready to go to war. I said, sorry, I got, I got to run at least three or four battle drills. Um, and he goes, all right, well, look, uh, once we get settled in our displaced location, you start planning some battle drills, go out there, take them out and tell me if they're, if they're ready to go to war. And of course I came back and said, absolutely. They're ready for war. Yeah, Cause we're not going to miss this thing. So, uh, anyway, but here's my story about my buddy and about lifelong friendships. There we were in Iraq and it was probably day three. It was right before the peace broke out because it was a hundred hours and I'm in my assembly area and my Cobras assembly area. You, you basically circle up. Uh, usually the 58s are in the middle and the guns are on the outside. You just kind of create a little defensive perimeter. And this 58 flies in with an Eagle painted on the side in the middle of my formation and lands. And this big, tall, Steve's like six, five, this big, tall, lanky dude, you know, like squeezes himself out of this scout. And he's like a hundred meters away. 
And I look at this guy, I, you know, and I see his gait and his walk. And I went, holy crap, that's Steve Mathias. I hadn't seen him since we graduated flight school. And so in 1987, and I, like I get out of my 58, we're about to take off on a mission. I run across the desert and there we are. I'm like, dude, you're alive. <laughs> you know, and uh, he was out searching for a, a lost Hemet truck. And, and, you know, and he was in the 101st then and I was in third ACR. Anyway, just a bizarre encounter in the middle yeah, of, a, absolutely. Of, uh, of combat. I just so. picture you running across the desert right now, across all the, the, the helicopters <laughs> firing up. It's like a slow motion. Yeah. You guys hug each other. It's like a movie scene. I was like, yeah. <laughs> Yeah. That's cool. What a great guy. I want to take it a little bit back to, uh, to flight school. So, uh, yeah. what was someone who has really no knowledge about flight school? I mean, you essentially said that you just took this test without studying. So I'm guessing yeah. what you knew was very little. So it was kind of just like everything was thrown at you really quick. What was the hardest thing for you to grasp going to flight school? Um, so I'm, I'm lucky, you know, I've played a lot of sports. Um, I got, I've got really good hand eye coordination and, um, I, so the flying maneuvers were not, um, you know, it, it, everyone struggles with them initially, but some people get them quicker than others. And then some people have a more innate uh, ability to fly. And I was lucky that I did how that, where that came from. I don't know. So my check rides were, uh, I did really well in the check rides where I struggled because I was always behind academically. Um, I, I, I had to force myself to rote memorization because that's all what aviation's about uh, in the army uh, flight school. And I know that the other services are a little bit different, but you have to memorize all of the limitations, the emergency procedures that, you know, um, all of, um, the details about the, uh, the aircraft, the pieces, the parts, what they do. And that is straight rote memorization. And my brain hadn't clicked that way yet. And so I was forced to write everything down on three by five cards. And I would spend all day Sunday, just literally going through that stuff and, and a asking myself these questions and then answering them. Because when you're in flight school and, or even when you're in, uh, you know, you're not in flight school and you're in a unit, when you take a check ride, it's all the same. It starts with an oral examination and they have a list of questions that run every section and every uh, part of what is required for an army aviator to include, um, you know, uh, you still talk about uh, aerodynamics. You still talk about um, aeromedical, um, about, you know, the, you have to describe the eye, the inner ear. Um, you have to, you know, what are the different uh, uh, aspects of, of aerodynamic uh, flight? Um, and then you then they get into the dash 10, which is your a manual for your aircraft. They ask you questions with that. Then you go out to, uh, and that's about an hour. And then you go out to the aircraft and they'll, you have to do a pre-flight. And this is even in flight school. And they ask you questions about the pieces and parts. What's that? That's a fuel filter. How many PSI does the fuel filter operate off this, that, and the other? Does that, is that bleed air? Where does that tube go? You know, the joke used to be dropping oil into the oil tank and describe to me where that thing goes throughout the engine. Mm -hmm. um, and then you take off and you do your maneuvers. And then you usually get asked questions in the middle of the maneuvers to get you to multitask. So anyway, um, again, all of that stuff when it came to manipulating the controls, I felt really comfortable, you know, whether it was an auto rotation, a running landing, a low level auto rotation, um, just normal flight, um, you know, and, and doing all of that. It was that it was the knowledge. And that's what I found most challenging, but I got through it. 
Yeah, your story kind of sounds very similar to mine. I played sports my whole life, played played football in college, and I was just never really interested in school. Nothing really caught my eye, my attention. I wasn't able to just ever force myself to study until I found flying. And it was the same way, hand-eye coordination, I could fly, but I really had to force myself to study. And that is one of the hardest things. And I probably could have gone by a little quicker if I would have taken a little more time and realized how much I just needed to force myself to study at first for all the rote memory, like you said. Yeah. Yeah. And I, it got, it, you know, my brain was never trained. It still took me a couple of years to, for my brain to kind of really click, yeah. uh, probably about five years of constantly. Cause you know, I changed aircraft a couple of times. So I, um, that, well, no, I guess I didn't back then, but, um, we, we had alpha model 58 and Charlie's and they were just a little bit different, but, um, yeah. For, so. for someone that's struggling with studying right now, what, what was it that got you to change your brain? Was it just repetition? Was it just getting used to studying like that and it finally clicked or did you try different studying techniques? It was, it, for me, what worked was one, you got to pull all your distractions out. I mean, you can't have the TV on in the background. You can't have anything. You can't have movement, people around. Go into your back room or you're in your room at your desk. And actually, there were times I'd walk around the living room and you just have a stack of cards and they're usually broken down by topic. Um, so you have a stack for, let's say, emergency procedures, a stack for your, your limitations, a stack for um, questions about IFR flight, um, whatever it is, and then all the regulations. And then um, you, just, you, you just drill 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 the other thing is get a study partner what i found um I, the second time i had to really go through this actually second and third i went through the oh 58 kyber warrior course before um when i was a major and i went through the blackhawk course uh, when i was a colonel um and they, you don't get cut a break you still have to do all the same work and I, I got study partners because there's something about somebody sitting across from you asking questions that makes it a little bit more difficult than just you flipping a card. And we, you know, especially OH58D, a guy named Doug Zemer, um, he went on to the, went to the 25th. We were going through the course together. Every we studied every night because we are two majors in this course with a with a bunch of W ones and lieutenants, and we, we don't we don't want to get busted on the check ride. <laughs> yeah. We felt the pressure, right? You can't look and bad in there. To, no, we <laughs> we wanted to perform. So anyway. Um, but yeah, you a study partner and you just got to rote memorization, just repetition, repetition. Every And the other thing is time management. If you're in flight school, you're lucky to get a spare hour or two. So you have your cards with you every second. So when you go in to get a haircut, you pull the cards out. When you go in and you're standing in line or waiting for your order to come out of Starbucks, you pull out a card and, and, and do two questions. I mean, you've got to time manage and you've got to be able to make sure that every second that you're awake, you are solely focused on getting through flight school. And then I'll finish with this. You still need to take a day off a week. And for me, it was Friday night and all day Saturday, Saturday night. And so I go out with my buddies on Friday night, of course, and then usually chill on Saturday and go to a movie um, and not partake in anything on Saturday night. So I was fresh and ready to go and study all day Sunday afternoon or Sunday. That's great advice. Yeah. It's important to step away. It's important to give your brain a little fun to kind of get back and ready for the grind. Cause no one can really, you're going to burn out eventually if you don't have any fun, you know, you got to find yep. time for that. Right. Absolutely. I know you noticed you mentioned that you didn't want to burn out. You didn't, you didn't want to uh, or fail out or go back and uh, go back, do something else. What, did a lot of people fail out of flight school? Is that a common thing or are they, uh, they give them multiple chances upon, upon failures? Yeah. So a couple of things. Um, 
not a lot of people filled out because they would work. For, there were some people that quit within the first couple of weeks when they took their first check or not check ride, but what they called a nickel ride. Mm-hmm. Um, some folks, it scared them. To, they just said, no, I'm done. They switched out the branches. And then there's segments of flight school and it's very different now. Um, but you would have all the, each segment is considered a gate and you've got to take a check ride to get through the end of, uh, uh, to get through that, next gate right um and you had a chance to come back and then take a re uh, if you fail a check ride to come back and retake it one more time and if you didn't you got recycled to the class before you okay um and usually though you are only going to get recycled once maybe twice if there's uh, like you know if you had extenuating circumstances um back then in, in army flight school we used to wear colored hats and I, so i was green flight and so if you got the reputation of being what they called quote unquote, I'm doing air quotes right now, <laughs> rainbow flight, meaning you've been in multiple flight classes because you kept failing your check rides. It's just not a great rep to have. And, they, and there were there were one or two. But see, usually if you get usually if you get recycled back once, it, you know, it's like, OK, you just didn't get that portion of it. And frankly, where a lot of people and I came close was uh, during instruments, doing getting your IFR done. Uh, I barely passed that check ride. All the other check rides, I was in the 90s, 94, 96. I mean, I'm really high check. <laughs> I jacked that one up <laughs> at the end of the check file. It was like, you know, you showed some aspects of brilliance tonight and then also <laughs> some really stupid stuff. But I'm going to give you the benefit of the doubt and pass you with a 71. <laughs> oh, 71. Look at you. That number has been pretty important in your career I know, so far. <laughs> I know. So um, I'm like, man, thanks. That's so but, funny. Uh, yeah. Uh, shoot, I lost my train of thought. What were we talking about? No, um, you're fine. I think you encompassed what you're saying pretty well. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I was so. going to kind of bring it out of flight school now. So, I mean, you're obviously okay. where you are today now. Uh, talk a little bit about your progression. Like, so all right, you are out of flight school. What's next? Uh, do you get deployed right away? Do you go to another base? Like what was next for you? Yeah. So no, I, um, I begged and pleaded to go to Korea. It's like nobody begs and pleads to go to Korea, but that's where all the flight time was. And, and I mean, you know, that's during the cold war is 87. So anyway, I got to go to Korea and I was in a uh, unit, uh, that we were, we were a 30, uh, a theater attack battalion. So I was a scout platoon leader in the 309th attack helicopter battalion. And they had just cohorted and come over as part, they were originally part of the 101st anyway. So they get to Korea and I got there like three months later, but we we were uh, assigned to to do the fly the DMZ from checkpoint two to ninety six, which is the whole theater. And so that was our mission. We were fifteen minutes off the or fifteen kilometers off the DMZ, and that was our mission for a year: is flying border patrol and then also doing missions and, and being on alert and being ready to go. So I did that for a year, and then um, I left and went to Third Armored Cavalry Regiment, Fourth Squadron, Third Armored Cavalry Regiment at Fort Bliss. And this is the first time I got to the CAV, and I loved it. <laughs> and I got another platoon, back to back platoons, which is usually you don't that doesn't happen and i was in nomad troop and i had this guy named captain rick rivera who was the epitome of leaders this guy i i've modeled my leadership style after three people uh rick rivera gratino sealock who was a, a retired one star and this guy named uh, big al roberson and he you know each one had a role in my developing my style but anyway so i did that another year uh another scout platoon leader and then i got the support platoon which is a really hard job but um it was it was an honor to get it. Um, and then, uh, after that is when I went to, uh, I took that, that, uh, renegade troop in desert storm and I ended up commanding it for two years after we came back. 
and, and went to the, took him to the National Training Center twice. And then I had to go to the captain's career course. And normally, you don't go into a command until after the captain's career course. And I got an early command. So anyway, um, and I did some other stuff in between that until I was a major. I got another flying job. I was an observer controller at, at Hohenfels, Germany for two years. Flew a bunch of Huey time, which is always fun. Um, but my, I really kind of started getting modernized when I came out of what they call Commander General Staff College, which is kind of your mid-manager level school. And I got to go into the OH-58 Cabo Warrior. And I, st- I, I that was... 1999 and i didn't go through a new aircraft transition for another 10 years and i flew that so i flew that as a major but more importantly i think is i came back to the 82nd after being a major i went away to another um, position but i came back and um took command of the kyle warrior squadron 117 cavalry squadron and then three months later took him to iraq in operation iraqi freedom three and i'll tell you that was a um that was a challenging year uh we uh there was a lot of action uh we ended up getting i think 26 aircraft shot up uh two shot down uh we lost two brilliant aviators um several purple hearts and uh but we did a lot of good i know we did because Typically, a 58, uh, OH-58 uh, Kyle Warrior is called in on what we call troops in contact or a tick, and it's basically a 911 call. And we were flying 24-7 on patrol uh, in the Samara, Bakuba area, and then I had, we had another aircraft troop. I, two were down there, and then one was up in Mosul. And um, it just kept getting hotter and hotter in terms of uh, activity from the time we got there in December of 04 until the time we left in October of 05. Um, it was just getting, you could tell, you could feel the pace of everything picking up and uh, the insurgency and what it was doing. But uh, that group of soldiers, uh, the, we were called Pale Horse and our motto was Death Rides. Uh, and I'll tell you, uh, I'm still in touch with almost all of them to this day. And they were some brilliant brilliant aviators that would answer the call and i'll describe it this way justin when you are on the radio and you get a call from typically it's a pfc or a specialist and you hear machine gun fire in the background and you can hear uh their voice and that they're afraid or they're you know and 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 they need you right then and there there is nothing nothing that we won't fly to to get to the sound of those guns and help those soldiers on the ground that is what it is to be inspired by aviation for me it's the mission and it's helping that soldier on the ground accomplish their mission and at times to save their lives and we did that a lot over there it gives me the chills just thinking about that. Cause I mean, that's a, that's a mindset. That's a decision that you make. Uh, you're, you're putting yourself in danger to go make sure other people can walk away. And uh, that's incredible. And I want to say, first off, thank you so much for your service. Uh, I know a lot of people have made the ultimate sacrifice, protecting our freedoms, protecting our country. And I really appreciate you, uh, you going up and, and, and being prepared to make that sacrifice. Cause not everyone does that. So thank you so much for that. You're welcome. Thank you. But thank you for saying that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, what? So you have been through, sounds like a lot of deployments. How many deployments have you been through? Three. What was one but, but, more? But the interesting thing. Uh, so uh, I commanded at the company, battalion, actually air cav troop, air cav squadron and brigade in combat. There's only one other general right now that I know of that did that a guy named Doug Gabram. Oh, wow. Because you, you had to have commanded early on in Desert Storm to be able to have done all three. So, uh, you know, I, I, I sign out on terminal leave for retirement on Friday. 
And there's many things, there's many things I'm proud of that I was able to, that I was given an opportunity to for in the last 34 years, but that's one of them commanding in combat three times. That's amazing. The, man- the mantle of command in combat is night and day from when you're in peace. And when something happens and they all look to you, I call it the mantle of command. You have to be able to lead them through that good, bad, or, or whatever, but you've got to be able to take charge and lead them through that. And it's, and you can imagine in combat, you're making life and death decisions. Yeah. How do you, how do you make those decisions? Like, what do you, what do you take in as an instinct, as a feeling? Cause it's a very fluid thing. So if you have a wrong decision, you can't ever harp on that. You gotta, you gotta move on and make the right decision the next time. Like what's going through your mind when you're making a big decision like that? So it depends if you have time. So first, if you establish, I was lucky to get three months with the team before we deployed and we bonded. We just did. And I, and it was, it wasn't like I influenced who was in the unit at all. Zero. It just, it just turned out it was the right people together to go. I mean, it's, it's, it's challenging to keep morale up in combat. But you go and talk to anybody that is part of this, uh, that was part of that organization, and you can, you will find that they, they'll tell you our morale was higher when we came out of uh, Iraq than it was even before we went. And um, the decisions and how I made them is if I had time, um, I would, um, of course, listen to the senior leadership. And I had, I called it my like executive group. And it was my XO, my S3, my senior warrant officer, and my senior enlisted advisor. And we would get together and discuss. Um, that's if you have time. But if you don't have time, then what you have to do is you got to go, like you said, it's instinct and it's blink. And I felt very comfortable because I had already been to combat once as it, in Desert Storm, although it was 100 hours, it was still, you know, you're still are, are the responsibility of that. Um, much more was going on in Iraq that second time. But uh, I just, I, I, I used a lot of that blanket instinct. I really did. And self-reflection on stuff. If you, if you jack something up, um, you've got to really be prepared to one, um, let you know, or listen to somebody say, sir, that probably wasn't a great decision. Here's what we could have done better. Okay. Got to do it. You got to be open to that. And you got to constantly do what we, we would do AARs or after action reviews. And we called it rebluing because the tactics were changing on the ground with the insurgency all the time. And we wanted to stay ahead of that. So we would constantly sit there and talk to each other about how best can we overcome the problem sets that we're getting. So, um, but anyway, I typically use what I call my blink, my instinct, my gut. If you don't have time, you got to go with your gut. What's the biggest fear as someone that has command over uh, a troop or people or just uh, an influence over a certain amount of people? What's your biggest fear in that situation? Is it putting them in a situation where they can't get out, even though you know you're doing the greater good? Is it the, f- the fear of losing someone? Is it the fear of losing your life? Is it, well, what's the biggest fear? Going yeah, it's, it's, it's losing someone. That was heart-wrenching, heart-wrenching. And we still had six months left in the, in the fight. And you can imagine, um, we all grieved. Uh, we, we celebrated both their lives. Um, and, but we knew we still had six months of combat left and we had to get back to business and we had to get back to focus because it's when I think, you know, if, if that could, that could have distracted the the command, the, the, the organization to the point where we may have lost somebody else. And, and we almost did literally within five days of leaving we had an aviator who's 
like a dear friend of mine now. His wife was the JAG, the lawyer for the organization, and he was the warrant officer. And he left there as like one of the most highly decorated guys um, to come out of Iraq in a long time. And here's what happened. He, uh, they were flying at night, uh, but they had the late night shift, like zero four to like, uh, zero nine. And he was down in Bakuba where we had lost the other aircraft and, uh, and crew. And he saw, he was in the left seat. He saw movement and he grabs the controls and, uh, from the guy in the right guy named Chach. Um, and Willie, uh, looks down. He had just put up his goggles cause it got light enough and put down his clear face mask. And he'll tell you to this day, he never wears the clear face mask, but he just happened to do it. He looks down and next thing you know, he sees a flash and a bullet goes through his eye, his, his, uh, face, uh, shield just to the left, uh, of his left eye and then goes out the back of his helmet and goes up through the windscreen. It was an AK bullet and, uh, his head snaps back. It knocks him out, gives him a concussion. Um, and he slumps on the controls and they were 50 feet above the palm groves. Chach grabs the controls and pulls 167% on power, which you're really, you know, I think I can't remember my limitation. I think it was like, we were allowed 125 for like four seconds. Uh, but we had, a, we had the FADEC aircraft. And so if you asked for it, it gave it to you, but you know, I will pay for that engine, which we did and transmission and, um, powertrain, uh, all day long. Cause Chach barely pulled it out above the Palm Grove and then had to hold Willie back. Cause he started to wake up. Um, and started thrashing in the cockpit till he got back to a fob and then landed. And they had medics waiting for Willie. Um, and that guy, uh, and he got fragmented. He ended up getting a purple heart because the bullet fragmented uh, and went into areas around his eye and his cheek. It took me two years to get him his uh, his purple heart, but I got it for him. Uh, and then for another fight, he got a DFC. And then he also got a, uh, a two air medals for valor. <laughs> but anyway, hey. so... It's stuff like that, that four days before de- redeployment, I, I thought I had lost, because I, you know, I, I got the reports. We didn't know how he was doing. And I thought we had lost another soldier. And so, that, you know, that's what's, that's what's always on your mind. That's what keeps you up as a commander. Um, so anyway. Dang, I mean, wow. Uh, again, getting chills again. That's crazy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, it, it's tough. I mean, yeah, it, being in control, being in command, it, it, it can't be easy. It's not for everyone. Did you know you wanted to go down this route early on? Was this your dream and goal to be where you are today? Um, uh, not to be a general. Um, I always thought in my, you know, I, someone asked me this the other day, and I think it says I'm getting closer. People are asking me these questions <laughs> to retirement. Um, I remember standing in a formation at Fort Rucker, Alabama as a second lieutenant, and I just got down there. And I don't know why I thought it, it came flashes into my head that I wanted to be a colonel. And I think it's because I had two very, very good colonels, commandants, um, Colonel Chikala and um, Colonel Carboni up at Norwich as our commandants, and they were great um, role models. And so that's what I wanted to be. And I, I didn't think this was going to happen. I mean, I'm not a, I never got promoted early. I, I don't, I didn't really know a lot of generals until I became one. Um, and I worked in the Pentagon. Uh, that got me a little bit more exposure. I used to joke that most generals couldn't pick me out of a group of two. Um, and so I just didn't think it was going to happen. And, uh, but it's been a, it's been, I've been a general now for seven years uh, or, or six years and I'll retire and I've had some great jobs and really, really the whole 34 years I've been, it's been 
awesome. I mean, the army has been, has given me so many opportunities and I've had such a good time and I really enjoy, um, you know, being, being a soldier. And certainly I like being in command. Um, I, I feel, I feel, uh, very relaxed with that responsibility and, and, and also juiced at the same time. I leap out of bed, yeah. but, uh, but I'm ready for something new. I'm not going to be looking back. Um, I'm, I'm going to sign out on leave on uh, Friday and I started my new job on September 14th. That's amazing. What's the new job going to be? I'm going to work for Textron Systems nice. um, as their vice president for global military sales and strategy out of their their DC office. That's amazing! Congratulations. Yeah, I'm really excited. I would they've be got too. Some, they've got great leaders in that company, and I've been why I've I've had an opportunity when I worked in the building um, to interact with a lot of defense. Um, uh, uh, businesses. And uh, <clears throat> I've, I've kind of watched some of the leaders move up. And I always said, a buddy asked me once, what do you want to do when you retire? So I want to work for something I believe in with people I believe in. And I got to hit the mark on both sides in Textron Systems. Absolutely. I fly a, an airplane made by Textron. It's not a military or defense, but yes, uh, so. you do. As a matter of fact, you. because they have Textron's got five sub businesses. They got Bell, they've got Cessna, um, they got Speechcraft, um, they've got Textron Systems, which yeah. is kind of an air, land, and sea. And then they got Easy Go Golf Courts. Uh, no golf way. Carts. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> So if you That's really awesome. want to retire, you can just go sell some golf carts, right? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. But I'm super excited. As a matter of fact, I have a, my future boss. He, uh, I'm checking in with him this afternoon. We're just catch up. Looking back on, on your whole career, I know you said you're not going to look back, but you're still in the army so we can ask this question. So looking back on your whole career, give me three memories that really stick out. Maybe it's like your, your favorite jobs, your favorite aircraft you've flown, your favorite moments in the army. What are kind of three, maybe not favorite, most memorable memories that you have? Um, my first one was taking command of that troop, renegade troop. Um, they were a fractured organization because of what had happened and bringing them together. It took six months and that was my true, uh, test of developing a leadership style that is inclusive, um, that is, uh, uh, you're still in command yet you're listening. You have the compassion um, for both the soldiers and their families. You don't just say it, but you mean it. Um, and you, and being tactically proficient, they've still got to look at you, um, as a leader, uh, and also physically fit all of that. You got to be able to fly the aircraft too. Um, and you can't be a crappy pilot. Um, so it was taking command of renegade troop. Um, my redeployment as a squadron commander, and don't get me wrong, that year was uh, as challenging as it was, and, and it was there was some, there was definitely very sad moments. Um, we were so darn proud when we came back. We were that was the only time I think in in that entire time that the army was in Iraq that there was only one uh, Kiowa Warrior Squadron in theater, and we were busy, and everybody wanted us, and the Apaches didn't have um, their MTAG yet, the newer FLIR system, and they couldn't see. And I, I know the Apache guys are going to hate me for saying this, but there were times, this is no lie, where they would call a troops in contact, Apaches would show up, and the infantry, this happened in Fob Normandy, uh, a place called Mukadaya. <laughs> the infantry guy said, no thanks, pale horses in route, we'll wait for them. And they're in a <laughs> firefight. 
because <laughs> we flew at 50 feet and we were down on the deck and they, and we, we got, we had a feel for the battle field and, you know, and, and we knew what they needed and they, they, you know, we always came in no matter what. Um, and so anyway, but it was coming back after that because the morale of the organization was so high and we, we were so close and tight. And I remember we did a Christmas ball and it was just, you could, uh, you just looked around the room. Everybody liked each other. Everybody, you just don't get that a lot in units. And it was just a brilliant uh, two year command uh, in terms of, I'm uh, not me being brilliant, but it was just so much fun. Um, and although I was a brigade commander in combat and, and just for the history, uh, to, to square the history, it was the largest aviation army aviation brigade to ever be formed and, and deployed to combat. And they actually called us an enhanced brigade because, uh, they were drawing stuff down and they basically doubled our size. So we had eight battalions and 5,000 soldiers and 233 aircraft. And we flew from Basra to Mosul. And I was in charge of that, running that from Taji challenging, but my most rewarding is not aviation. I hate to say that. Not my most, but the third one is the job I'm currently doing. Yeah. And I, I, I'm part of the United States. I am the commanding general for the United States Army recruiting. And it, I know it's not aviation, although we bring in our pilots from, you know, we call it high school to flight school. This, this has been very rewarding working with brilliant soldiers and civilians um, answering the call for our nation by putting people, as we call it, in boots. And I changed command on Thursday and I'm, it's going to be sad, but again, be, I'll be pretty excited about moving out to something new. Yeah. You've had a, you've had an incredible career and I'm very thankful you're coming on. We got about five more minutes and then we got 45 yeah. minutes to go. Uh, I just want to, I just want to say this first is thank you for coming on. It's been, I mean, I'm inspired just by listening to you talk. I can, I can sense the leadership in you. I can sense the drive. I can sense the energy. I can just feel it through the podcast through us talking right now. So I feel like you could go back out there right now and go lead some troops in a battle and you'd, you'd be all for it. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you, it's been, it's been fantastic. And you know, I'm going to have a quick speech for a lot of folks that know me. I just try not to, I've talked enough for 34 years, so it's going to be a quick change of command speech, but it's going to be a speech of thank yous, Justin. Yeah. And so it's essentially centered around thanking every one of the soldiers that I stood in formation with every one of the NCOs, non-commissioned officers, every one of the warrant officers that I flew with and I served with out there in army aviation and ground warrants, every officer. Um, and then thanking my family for this crazy but so much fun ride for the last 34 years and actually four months and uh yeah it don't regret one bit of it that's awesome that's how you should live your life don't regret it um Ooh. so yeah I, I, I was talking about your leadership skills and you talked a little bit about the people who have influenced you what are some outside influences so someone that wants to, to hear this and is like man i wish i could lead like him i wish i could think like him did you have any books that you recommend did you have any uh, outside resources that you read that you uh, uh watched or whatever that kind of helped you build the leadership skills you have or was it just the uh, the people around you that helped you I read a lot of, so I already told you, I like history. I love history. Um, I read a lot of biographies. I read about Marshall and Eisenhower and Bradley um, and, and uh, Churchill and then uh, Grant and uh, Lincoln. And, you know, I wanted to always, and, and many, many more, um, I always didn't picture myself in their position, but how, as they were making huge decisions that affected both our country and our world, how did they make those decisions? And, you know, how would you potentially uh, add to or, or take in additional information to make those decisions? And I'll, I'll put it this way, Justin. So that's how I developed that. But what I also find is you have to have the patience to listen because 
there, there's the people that you're working with want to be part of the solution. And if they're not part of the dialogue and you just roll in there and start issuing orders, you haven't, they're not bought in yet. And if you have time, why not sit down and, and put the problem set on the table and say, guys, what do you think? And when they talk to you, you better listen. And it can't be, you're just pausing how you, pausing from talking for another five seconds till you can prove to everybody how brilliant you are. No, Mm -hmm. listen to your people because they, they have got great ideas. Now you may use this portion of what this person, a person, a says, and a portion of what person B says, but maybe not anything that C says, but it doesn't matter. At least their voice was heard. And nine times out of 10, you will have the ability, you will have the time to develop courses of action based on what your people tell you and then move out because at that point they're bought in and they're really now part of the solution. And lastly, I'll just tell you this other thing. You got to really mean it when you take care of somebody. If you walk in on day one and say, these are my, this is my philosophy and vision. And the first time your philosophy is tested and you don't adhere to it, You've just broken that trust. So if, if you say part of my philosophy is compassion for both the soldiers and the families, and the first time somebody's got has to, you, it may hurt a little bit, but you need to let someone go do a professional developing course, or they've got to go uh, visit the family for whatever reason, and you say no, everything you just said was essentially a lie. And so you, once you build your trust, you can't break it. Yeah, I would say it's easy to lose trust, and it's even harder to gain trust back. So you have Absolutely. to be very careful. I do have one more question for you. It'll be quick. This is just the last yep. thing. So uh, someone coming into the army right now, uh, they're just recruited. They're going through flight school. They, they hear this. They want to have your career. Uh, what are some advice, some tips, just uh, if you could give any advice to someone just starting their career in aviation or in the army in general, what would you give them? I tell them, especially in aviation, don't choose your aircraft based on you think the aircraft's cool and you just want to fly that aircraft. Choose wisely, my friend. Because you get one choice and you very rarely will get a second advanced aircraft transition. You choose the aircraft based on the mission. Because if you really want to go out there and blow some stuff up, then get in the Apache. If you want to be able to go in there and fly to the X and air assault folks in, get a Blackhawk and more specifically get a Mike model. But if you want to kind of move some big stuff and fly an incredibly advanced aircraft and get an F model 47. I mean, that's essentially it because that is it for you. Unless you go to the 160th and fly so that you'll get, um, you'll get some transitions in some special operations aircraft. Um, and you potentially as a warrant can go fixed wing later. Um, but I'll just tell you, pick it based on what the mission is, because that's, what's going to inspire you. That's what's going to just kind of float your boat, get your, get the hairs on the back of your neck, standing up when you're hitting that X at zero 200 and zero loom, and it's dusty as heck. And those troopers, you hit the ground and they're off that aircraft in three seconds and you've pulled out and you've hit that target at plus or minus three seconds. If that floats your boat, then you need to go fly a Blackhawk. But if you roll in there and you see a tank eight kilometers away and you pull that trigger and a hellfire goes off the rails and blows that thing up, then that's the aircraft for you. Just ask yourself those questions. That's amazing. All right. I appreciate you coming on. Like we're at 45 minutes, a little bit over. I know that's our time. I I really appreciate it. I could talk to you all day. And I mean, that was awesome. (laughs) That was amazing. So maybe one day we can hook up and do the skin later. We can talk about what your life's like outside the military. So Major General Muth, I really appreciate it. I hope you have a great day and we can stay on a debrief a little bit if you want, if you got to go, no worries. But uh, thanks for coming on. I really appreciate it. Yeah, Justin, I really do. I just got to change real quick and and, uh, head on out. But um, thank you so much. This, you know, I, if you 
want to, if you send me an email, I'll, I'll hook you up with maybe some other guys. I, I, I think if you get a chance, I, but he's super busy. You need to talk to a guy named Doug Gabriel, who was a company commander in Desert Storm under Dick Cody and did Operation um, Normandy, which was oh, the cool. deep strike. Yeah. That guy you need to talk to. I'd so. love to. Absolutely okay. love to. So uh, yeah, thank you so much for coming on. I hope you have a great day and uh, the best of luck in the rest of your career. I know you're going to do great things. Thanks, Justin. Have, have a great a day, one. man. You too. Go home for the good. Uh, cool. Thanks. Bye. And that is a wrap of episode 127 of the Pilot the Pilot podcast. Every single time I say 120, 125, 127, or whatever the episode number is, I'm just continued and amazed at how much this podcast has grown, how we have grown such a great community. I thank you guys and girls, the AV Nation, for being a part of it, for sharing these episodes, for for listening, for sending me recommendations. Keep it up. I want to keep building. I want to keep growing this into quite possibly, hopefully one day, the greatest aviation company, organization, podcast, whatever it may be in the future of all time. I want to really, really build on this. And I can't do this without you guys and girls. So please continue to support the podcast. It doesn't have to be financial. It doesn't have to be buying stuff. It just has to be sharing. It can be just telling your friends, listen to Pilot the Pilot. It can be sending me messages that you love the podcast. It can be sending me guest recommendations. Most of the time when I choose someone to record with, it is based on recommendations. So if you recommend them to me, I'm more than likely to go ahead and interview them pretty much on the spot. So keep sending me those and keep supporting the podcast and keep reviewing it, keep sharing it. I just continue doing what you're doing. Uh, without you all, I would not be able to continue to do this. The support has been amazing. So let's keep growing. 2020, 2021, we're going to keep growing this bad boy to be something great. So Aviation, thank you so much for that. I really do appreciate it. If you haven't already, please leave us a review on iTunes and consider supporting us on Patreon if you want to. I'm going to try to grow Patreon more. I'm going to try to make more good content just for Patreon. Give them a little bit more benefits there as well. So Aviation Nation, thank you so much. I hope you guys are having a great day. Oh, one more thing. We're going to be doing another State of the Industry podcast. I think it is time. There's obviously a lot going on right now with the warn letters, the warn notices, and furloughs potentially off and most likely off in the future. So we're going to be coming up with that one probably next Tuesday. I think I'm going to be recording with Jim here soon. So be on the lookout for that. But Aviation Nation, that's all I got for you today. I hope you guys are having a great day. And as always, happy flying.